We bring you what's happening in the world right now, coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. The Navy knew about the implosion of the Titanic-bound submersible very early on. That's what the Coast Guard is now saying, and Titanic Director James Cameron speaks out about the tragedy. Patients at a drug center in Philadelphia are developing terrible wounds. The gashes come from a powerful animal sedative, often mixed with fentanyl. The U.S. rolls out the red carpet for India's prime minister. The leader casts India as an ideal partner in the U.S.'s competition with China. We bring you analysis on India's strategic importance and some concerns. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is an update on the Titanic submersible. The Navy detected the implosion days before the public knew about it. And Titanic director James Cameron speaks out about the tragedy. Here's a summary. The U.S. Coast Guard is now confirming that the Navy detected the implosion of the Titanic-bound sub on Sunday. That's days before news of the implosion was made public on Thursday. The Coast Guard said the Navy detected a sound consistent with an implosion or explosion in the general vicinity of where the Titan submersible was operating when communications were lost. The Navy quickly provided this information to aid the search and rescue efforts, although at the time its significance was unknown. The Coast Guard announced Thursday that no one survived the deepwater expedition. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. Officials are now investigating what exactly happened and why the submersible named Titan imploded. Meanwhile, James Cameron, director of the movie Titanic, spoke out about the tragedy. So Ocean Gate shouldn't have been doing what it was doing. I think that's pretty clear. Cameron became a deep sea explorer in the 90s while doing research for the movie Titanic. He says he was skeptical when he first heard about the Titan. Well, I thought it was a horrible idea. Um, I wish I'd spoken up. You know, but I, I assumed somebody was smarter than me, you know, because I'd never experimented with that technology, but it just sounded bad. Cameron presumes that the carbon fiber and titanium hole would lead to separation of layers, which would in turn allow water to enter the hole, which causes failure over time. And we knew that the, if the sub passed its pressure test, it wasn't going to fail on the first dive. It might fail on dive seven, or I don't, I don't know what they're at, you know, but it's going to fail over time. And although multiple people are dead, a marine robotics professor predicts deep-sea tourism will grow. I suspect we will continue to see this, this sort of um, industry grow. There may be calls for more regulation, better understanding of how these sorts of vehicles are designed, built. He said giving tours to the Titanic wreck was controversial, given how many people died when the ship sank. There has been a lot of discussion in, in the community about you know, some of the ethics of going down and, and using this as a, a tourist destination. He added that deep sea expeditions are relatively new, which is why they might be more interesting to some. Moving on to a discussion on geopolitics, India is characterizing itself as a preferred partner for the U.S. as it competes with China on a global scale. That was the message Prime Minister Narendra Modi conveyed in his address to a joint session of Congress yesterday. I wanted to learn more about the decision to strengthen ties with India, so I spoke with an expert on Asian affairs. Joining me now is retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, and he wrote the book, When China Attacks, A Warning to America. It's great to have you with us, Grant. Well, glad to be here. Thanks very much. 
What strategic importance does India have in the U.S.'s efforts to counter China? Well, it's immensely important. Uh, India is a compatible, excuse me, compatible country uh, with the United States. It's basically aligned with us from a security perspective. In terms of economics, it's uh, a natural fit. Uh, politically, uh, it's more or less aligned with us. And compared to China, uh, it's a much, much better alternative. One remembers just a few years ago uh, that everyone was talking about Chimerica, this idea that China and America were just inevitably and uh, forever going to be linked because of the economic ties, being two big countries, etc. cetera. Uh, Chimerica was pretty much a mantra amongst America's elite class. Uh, this despite the fact that uh, China is a totalitarian dictatorship that seeks to destroy us. Now, compare that to India, and India looks pretty good. So it's nice that this has come about. Uh, it is very good that uh, this huge India, it's over 1 billion people, uh, probably bigger than China, uh, has sort of gotten closer to us and vice versa. And this has been a two-way movement. Right, and India has emerged as the most populous country in the world. And you talk about alignment between the U.S. and India. I want to point out, Modi said back in 2016 that the relationship between the two countries was set for a momentous future, and he says that that future is today. What do you make of the Biden administration welcoming Modi, even though there are allegations that human rights and press freedoms in India are eroding, and there are questions as to whether or not India would help promote this Western-led global order and cause calls for democracy, as well as the case of whether or not India would actually stand up for the U.S. in terms of a U.S.-China confrontation diplomatically? Well, you take India as it is. And compared to China, India looks pretty darn good. Uh, whatever problems it has uh, pale compared to anything that you've got uh, in China. Uh, the U.S. should not be in a position of lecturing anybody. Unfortunately, the Biden administration did not do this on Modi's uh, visit. Uh, yes, India sees some things differently than us, but by and large, it is a combat compatible uh, relationship. Uh, and it is important, as you've noted, that India can also provide some political support, leadership, uh, with other countries that might look at America a bit differently. So it has credibility in places that America ne uh, doesn't necessarily have it. Uh, I do think that India actually is on our side, to put it in a simple terms, and vice versa. We're on India's side. Uh, we both face a real threat from China. In fact, the Indian uh, people, the military, has been telling me for years, look, we've been at war with China since 1962. You Americans ought to wake up to that. Now, that's the kind of people you want uh, on your side. So for all this, all the problems that there are, and there's a sort of a shrill, loud, very vocal minority in the U.S. which uh, hammers on India's shortcomings, uh, well, they shouldn't get listened to too much. Uh, India, just like us, is an imperfect country trying to uh, improve. Uh, but compared to the alternatives, this is very good. And in terms of those allegations, Modi said that in India's democratic values, there is absolutely no discrimination. Retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham, thank you so much for the analysis today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Continuing now with coverage on domestic public health, a powerful animal sedative is popping up in the illicit drug market. The drug is often mixed with the synthetic opioid fentanyl and can cause gruesome skin wounds. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details and a warning that some viewers may find the following footage in this report disturbing. 
Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood is an area plagued with drug abuse. Outreach group Savage Sisters provides first aid, showers, clothes, and snacks to locals struggling with addiction. The group says xylazine is devastating the community. Xylazine is an animal-grade tranquilizer that is commonly used to adulterate the heroin and fentanyl supply. In our community specifically, it's pretty much in all the fentanyl. Um, and it was originally put in there to give the supply legs to make that euphoric feeling last longer. Xylazine users experience severe wounds and skin infections. The effects can lead to rotting tissue and amputation. In almost all cases, xylazine is added to the synthetic opioid fentanyl. The combination is dubbed Trank, and it's somewhat replaced heroin. So nobody asked for xylazine in the drug supply. And before anybody knew it, everyone, like the community is now chemically dependent on it. Uh, so now, yes, people do seek it out because they are dependent on it. And it has become the main supply. Elwood Warren's wounds were caused by Trank. Yeah, I can see what it's doing today. I mean, uh, it's deteriorated my health and my body tremendously almost overnight. Yeah. Rehab centers often aren't able to deal with the types of severe wounds caused by xylazine and there is no approved reversal drug to treat overdoses. Dominic Rodriguez is homeless and battling addiction. He says some of the effects of Trank are delayed. I could be walking down the street, it's 45 minutes later, I'm conscious just as I am right now, and you don't feel anything coming on, it's just sudden and abrupt, and I wake up trying to piece together what happened. Fatal overdoses involving xylazine increased more than 1,200 percent between 2018 and 2021. The shifting mix of opioids, stimulants, and sedatives is making the U.S. drug problem even more complicated. The crisis now claims more than 100,000 lives a year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Some First Amendment concerns. A Christian preschool has filed a religious discrimination lawsuit. The school claims it's being forced to give up its religious character to join the state's universal preschool program. It sued Colorado officials in federal court. The preschool program guarantees a minimum of 15 hours per week of state-funded services for every four-year-old in Colorado. Darren Patterson Christian Academy argues the state insists religious preschools abandon their beliefs to participate in the program. The school says it would be forced to hire employees who do not share its faith and to alter internal rules and practices. It says it would affect the way the school handles sexuality and gender related to restroom usage, pronouns, dress codes, and student housing during school trips. The lawsuit states that the program rejected the school's request for a religious exemption. The school's lawyer says the government's actions violate the school's First Amendment rights. Coming up, the National Hockey League will no longer have teams wearing the LGBT-themed warm-up jerseys. The NHL commissioner has weighed in on the issue. In some states, home prices have almost tripled in 10 years. The vast majority of potential home buyers expect to be priced out of the market. We'll have more for you in just a moment right here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. We're continuing with some sports-related news. The National Hockey League will no longer use LGBT-themed warm-up jerseys going forward. 
That's what NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman told Sportsnet following an NHL Board of Governors meeting on Thursday. I've suggested that it would be appropriate for clubs not to change their jerseys uh, in warm-ups because it's become a distraction and taking away from the fact that all of our clubs in some form or another host nights in honor of various groups or causes and we'd rather that we continue to get the appropriate attention that they deserve and not be a distraction. In the 2022-23 season, some NHL teams chose to wear LGBT-themed jerseys during warm-ups for specialty games. This caused some controversy, as some players skipped the warm-ups when their teams donned the jerseys, and some teams didn't wear the jerseys despite initially announcing they would. The NHL commissioner said that going forward, there won't be any LGBT jerseys or any other specialty jerseys during warm-up, including for LGBT Pride Nights. He addressed potential concerns with this decision, but said there's been great distraction about which teams and which players are choosing not to wear the jerseys. In other news, the Supreme Court rules that two green card holders can be deported on obstruction of justice charges. This means the high court considers the crime serious enough to justify the deportation of lawful permanent residents. Obstruction of justice is a term used when someone unlawfully interferes with a government proceeding. One case involves a citizen of Mauritius who was admitted as a U.S. permanent resident in 1985. The other is a Mexican citizen who was admitted in 1965. The Supreme Court decision broadens the definition of what can be considered obstruction of justice. That means removal from the U.S. is more likely in future cases. Justice Sotomayor disagreed with the court majority and filed the sole dissenting opinion. She says the decision changes what obstruction of justice means by broadening it too much. A recent survey found that nearly 80% of potential homebuyers expect to be priced out of the market if prices continue to rise. The Realtor.com and census-wide survey showed that the three biggest external factors that keep homebuyers from owning a property were inflation, rising interest rates, and mounting home prices. A new report found that states that traditionally offered more affordable home prices are experiencing huge hikes. According to Life and My Finances, a lending firm, states like Idaho, Nevada, Georgia, and Florida saw single-family home prices escalate nearly three times what they were just 10 years ago. For example, the report said that the median home price in Idaho is now over $430,000 compared with just $150,000 in 2013. Florida will soon block banks from denying services based on political opinions or religious beliefs The new law takes effect on July 1st and affects all financial institutions. This comes amid a number of cases of politically motivated debanking from financial institutions. Here's more on a recent case from NTD Business's Don Ma. Recently, Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody accused one of the largest financial services companies in the U.S., Fidelity Charitable, of sometimes refusing to facilitate donations to religious or conservative groups. In a letter, Moody demanded that Fidelity complies with the new state law that takes effect next month. And one of the groups that Fidelity has put up barriers for donations to is Alliance Defending Freedom. And here to talk to me about what happened is Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs, Jeremy Tedesco. So it, 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 it appears that Fidelity Charitable is creating some barriers for donations to your organization. Um, What exactly happened? Can you give us the details? 
Yeah, and it's not just our organization, Alliance Defending Freedom, but it's other conservative and religious organizations. Fidelity Charitable is telling donors who have accounts with them um, that there's a political litmus test on giving for all intents and purposes. If you want to give to ADF or a handful of other conservative or religious charities that are on the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate group list, um, you have to give up your anonymity in order to give to those groups, or if you're not, then you're just barred from giving to them. And that is a violation of Fidelity Charitable's promise to the donors that they are cause neutral and that they won't take the religious or political or philosophical beliefs of the organization you want to give to in account when they're deciding whether to approve a grant or not. And basically, this is making it harder for donors to donate to certain organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think the real big news here is that the attorney general of Florida uh, sent a letter to Fidelity Charitable telling them, look, not only is this a problem from a misrepresentation standpoint, but on July 1, we have a law that's going into effect that says financial institutions can't discriminate uh, against customers on the basis of their political or religious beliefs. And so she's asking them to confirm that by July 1, they will stop barring uh, donors or, or requiring donors to give up their anonymity uh, to, in, in order to give to charities like ADF. Did Fidelity, you know, create this barrier on the basis of discrimination to your organization, do you feel? Well, look, the, the organizations that they target are organizations that are the target of activist organizations like Southern Poverty Law Center and a group called Unmasking Fidelity. Who and this is something your, your viewers really need to understand. These activist organizations are putting intense pressure on Fidelity Charitable and other donor-advised funds because they want to stop money from flowing to organizations they disagree with. So the Southern Poverty Law Center has their completely discredited, discredited hate group list, and it looks like what Fidelity Charitable is doing is superimposing the hate group list on top of the giving choices that their donors have. And so if a, if a group happens to end up on the hate group list, then the, the Fidelity says, well, you have to give up your anonymity to give to them. That is, that is a political litmus test. How do we know that this is, I'll use the word discrimination, on, on Fidelity's part? Well, because of the way that um, it's targeted at conservative and religious groups. If you look at um, a, a Newsweek article I put out a, a few months ago, um, we've had donors now who have put in test donations through Fidelity Charitable. And what they do is they send donations to left-leaning groups that work in our issue areas, and those donations go through easy. It's just a, it's just a complete pass-through. But organizations on the right, especially organizations on the right who are on the SPLC hate group list, they immediately get hung up in the process, and the donor inevitably is told, you, you have to give up your anonymity to give. We have over 15 donors in over 12 states who have been told that. And so it's obviously something that's going on as a policy at Fidelity Charitable, and they need to stop it. All right, thanks for your time today, Jeremy. Pleasure. Thank you. A lot of talk about geopolitics today, and this one's about critical resources. The U.S. is one step closer to securing lithium in Chile. That's because the Senate just ratified a tax treaty between the two countries. Let's get some analysis on the impact of this. Joining me now is Bart Marcoys, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs at the U.S. Energy Department and former Career Foreign Service Officer at the State Department. Bart, thank you for coming on to discuss this important topic. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Without this treaty, Chile's government would enforce up to about a 50% tax on existing mining operations. How significant is this in terms of U.S. access to lithium? Oh, it's very important because without uh, the, the way our system is designed, without robust involvement from the private sector, it doesn't really matter what governments do, what, what the government-to-government relationship is like. And this opens the door to significant private sector involvement in Chile, in their mining sector, for copper and lithium both. And, of course, Senator Schumer said that this Chile agreement here now is, is critical because any nation that's looking to advance these, what he calls clean energy technologies, is, it's very important to have access to this. So what do you make of this? He's absolutely right. Um, we, copper and lithium are the are the critical elements for the modern, for any modern technology. I'm, the other day I went through my an old drawer looking for something, and I found this. It's my old iPhone from not that long ago, and I don't know whether you can see or not how small it is. Uh, it's less than half the size of my current iPhone, and it represents probably three times as much lithium in the battery and three times as much copper in the wiring and multiply that by the billions of phones sold and multiply and add to that all of the the batteries for electric vehicles all of the wiring for photovoltaic cells for solar energy anything that we do it, that includes electronics depends on these minerals that come from chile without clear access to them we are crippled in the modern economy. Yes, of course, and like you mentioned, iPhones are dependent on EV batteries and also renewable energy storage. Why is lithium, and therefore this treaty, important for American competitiveness? Well, without it, we can't build the materials we need. We have to have those materials in order to, to compete and in order to manufacture anything in the United States. In fact, I would prefer that the Senate now then pick up the mantle and make it easier to mine lithium in America. We have a lot of lithium mines here that are going unused because we can't get uh, permits for them. And I wish that the House and Senate would put pressure on the Biden administration to issue permits to mine lithium in our own country. But in the meantime, having access to it through an ally is an important uh, intermediate step. Domestic production is another avenue. China has been trying to get closer to these Latin American countries that are rich in resources for years now using what's known as checkbook diplomacy. How does this treaty counteract that? It lets, it, it, it keeps, it prevents the crippling of American companies. Without this treaty, American companies would not function in Latin America. They would not be able to continue operations with a 50% tax on their on their profits they would not be able to to it would not be profitable for them to go after the lithium and the copper that are there with this treaty they it they have an even um, playing field they've leveled the playing field for american companies bart marcois former deputy assistant secretary of international affairs at the energy department thank you so much for your time today Thank you, Kevin. Going down to Central America now. Guatemala has a presidential election this Sunday. Key issues are corruption, inflation, 
and violent crime. But no candidate is expected to secure enough votes to win outright, setting the scene for a runoff. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the race. According to polls, the race is tight between former First Lady Sandra Torres for the Social Democratic Party, moderate career diplomat Edmund Moulet, and conservative former Congresswoman Zuri Rios, daughter of the late dictator Efrain Rios Montt. We always vote for the candidate that's the least bad. I think we're in the same situation or worse than in previous years. Most of us have been voting this way, unfortunately, and lately there's less intention to turn out to vote. Frustration is growing in the country over the failure to tackle corruption, an issue that has strained relations with the United States. The environment is very tense in Guatemala, an environment of persecution. We have to capitalize on June 25. I call to all voters not to be scared and use the vote as a secret weapon to send a clear message that we don't want people from the past. None of the candidates are expected to clinch the 50% plus one vote needed to win outright. The two leading contenders will likely go to a runoff on August 20th. If we want to change our city's history and have more resources for transport, more resources for security, more resources for development and water, we have to vote for a coalition. Conservative businessman Carlos Pineda was a surprise leader in the polls. But a Guatemalan court last month ruled him ineligible for not complying with electoral rules. Pineda appealed the decision, but his complaint was thrown out by the country's highest court. Some of the other leading candidates also face legal questions. The court's decisions have somehow affected the credibility and trust in democracy. In this case, they have allowed candidates that have constitutional hindrances or administrative ones to run, but they didn't accept the cases. Definitely, this electoral process has more shades than lights. The administration of the outgoing president, Alejandro Jamate, has been mired by corruption scandals. The 67-year-old conservative cannot seek re-election under Guatemalan law. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. More coverage for you coming up. The Federal Trade Commission sues Amazon. The agency accuses the e-commerce giant of enrolling millions of consumers into Prime without their consent. A key figure in charge of the Biden administration's digital strategy is leaving. We'll have those details for you in just a moment. Great to have you back with us. The question on many people's mind, is Amazon manipulating customers into joining Prime? The Federal Trade Commission on Wednesday accused the tech giant of deceiving millions of consumers into its paid subscription. And today's Andrew Thomas has the latest. The FTC sued Amazon in federal court in Seattle, alleging that the company has knowingly duped millions of consumers into unknowingly enrolling in Amazon Prime. Amazon called the FTC's claims false on the facts and the law. Some analysts, like Michael Pachter, agree. A couple of the allegations didn't resonate with me, like one saying customers were having trouble finding uh, finding a way to purchase items without joining Prime. And in fairness, you know, they said millions of customers. Um, Amazon has over 200 million customers uh, that, in Prime. 
So the question is, is it 2 million? Is it 1% who are having difficulty? The FTC accuses Amazon of using manipulative or deceptive user interface designs to trick consumers. If somebody did in fact complain to the FTC, then that's legitimate and the FTC should protect them. I just haven't heard this as a widespread problem. The potential fine is going to be a, an infinitesimal amount. The FTC said Amazon Prime is the world's largest subscription program, generating $25 billion in revenue annually. Amazon claims that it intended to make it easier for consumers to sign up or cancel a Prime subscription. I think the FTC is looking for low-hanging fruit where they can win a victory against big tech and run a victory lap and claim that they're doing, you know, they're, they're watching out for the consumer. Amazon will argue, but ultimately they'll settle, they'll, they'll modify their subscription practices to make sure that nobody feels that they were taken advantage of. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Let's look at the executive branch. A White House official is leaving his position. He's considered a key figure in the Biden administration's efforts to shape social media narratives. Rob Flaherty has been observing the, overseeing the biggest ever White House digital team as the director of the Office of Digital Strategy. He is leaving in the midst of a lawsuit that accuses the Biden administration of pushing social media censorship. Attorneys General for Missouri and Louisiana initiated the legal action. Whoever becomes Flaherty's successor will have to take his place as defendant in the suit. The Missouri Attorney General reacted saying Flaherty was, quote, a central figure in the Biden administration's vast censorship machine. President Biden praised Flaherty in a statement and said that under his leadership, the government has built the largest office of digital strategy in history. There have been unconfirmed rumors that Flaherty could join Biden's 2024 re-election campaign. Facebook and Instagram will start restricting news on their sites in Canada. That's because of an online news bill passed by the parliament there. It forces social media platforms to pay news publishers for content. It all started with complaints from Canada's media industry about losing money. Canada says the bill makes the news market more fair and lets news organizations get a fair paycheck for links shared on the platforms. Meta criticized the bill. It says most people don't use its platforms for news and says forcing them to pay for links or content they don't post won't work. A similar law was passed in Australia in 2021. Another executive parting ways with TikTok. Chief Operating Officer Vanessa Pappas says she is stepping down after five years leading the social media platform. Pappas says she will refocus her entrepreneurial passions. TikTok confirmed that her successor will be Zenya Muka, a 20-year veteran at Disney. Last month, Eric Hahn, TikTok's senior official in charge of U.S. data safety, also left the company. That came amid heightened pressure from Washington to ban the app nationwide. Lawmakers in March demanded that TikTok's Chinese ownership divest its shares. More than half of U.S. states have banned the app from government devices. Stay tuned for some shocking news in just a moment. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, some shocking war coverage news. The head of the private military contractor, Wagner, says Russia's invasion of Ukraine was not justified, accusing Moscow of fooling Russians over the conflict. The UK government is investigating allegations that British universities have helped the Iranian regime develop suicide drones that are used in Ukraine. We'll have more for you shortly here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. The founder of Russia's Wagner Mercenary Group today posted a bombshell video on social media. He claims that Russia did not face an imminent security threat when it started to invade Ukraine in February 2022. Now the Russian Defense Ministry is trying to deceive the president, the public, and tell them there was insane aggression on the part of Ukraine and they were going to attack us together with the entire NATO bloc. Prigozhin did not personally attack Russian President Vladimir Putin, but his comments are at odds with the reason for the military operation given by the Russian president. Prigozhin escalated his criticism of Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. He said Russia went to war for the army's top brass's self-promotion. He criticized the military leadership for poor planning of the invasion and said Shoigu sent Russian men to the battlefield as cannon fodder. Prigozhin's feud with military leaders goes back years. It spilled into the open amid the fighting for the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, which was spearheaded by his mercenaries. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said today the contested site of a proposed Russian embassy was secure. After it emerged, a Russian diplomat was squatting on the land. Australia will stand up for our values and we will stand up for our national security. And a bloke standing in the cold on a bit of grass in Canberra is not a threat to our national security. And I th the site is very close to the Australian Parliament, which experts have said poses a spying risk. Lawmakers passed emergency legislation last week blocking Russia's lease on security grounds. A local newspaper reported that a Russian diplomat is squatting on the land in a portable building since Sunday. But police are unable to arrest him as he has diplomatic immunity. Moscow says it has spent nearly $6 million on the site and has taken the matter to Australia's high court. Russia this week barred dozens of Australians from entering the country in what it said was retaliation for Australia's long-running sanctions regime against it. The UK government has confirmed that it's investigating allegations that some British universities have helped the Iranian regime develop suicide drones. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on Wednesday told lawmakers that the government will not accept collaborations that compromise the UK's national security. The London-based Jewish Chronicle newspaper reported earlier this month that several British universities have worked with Iranian researchers on drone technologies that have potential military applications. It identified one study about the type of engine that has been installed in Iranian suicide drones used by Russia and Ukraine. The report said the study was supported by the Iranian regime's Ministry of Science, Research and Technology. The Chronicle said it has also found hundreds of projects where British researchers worked with Iranian institutions that have been sanctioned over their involvement with the Iranian regime's nuclear program. A top EU official on a visit to California said that Twitter needs to do more work to fall in line with the European Union's tough new digital rulebook. European Commissioner Thierry Breton said he noted the strong commitment of Twitter to comply with the bloc's sweeping new standards, but he said work needs to continue after reviewing the results of the voluntary test at Twitter's San Francisco headquarters with owner Elon Musk and new CEO Linda Yaccarino. Breton, who oversees digital policy, is also meeting other tech bosses in California. The Digital Services Act will force big tech companies to remove what Europe deems hate speech, disinformation, and other harmful and illegal materials on their sites. 
Twitter's global government affairs team tweeted that the company is on track to be ready when the new rules take effect in just two months. Critics have voiced concerns that Europe is pushing its hate speech laws into the United States. The Dutch government is considering a new law that would outlaw pets with attributes that prove to cause medical issues. The legal change would ban possessing and advertising overbred pets. There will be a transitional period during which owners of such pets will be exempt. Animal rights activists said features such as overly short snouts are cruel for pets. Veterinarian Gert Terhar said people tend to forget about the health of dogs when breeding, and the most affected range from pugs and bulldogs to boxers and chows. He said overly short snouts can cause breathing problems. According to the CDC, about one-third of adults in the U.S. aren't getting enough sleep. Let's get some tips from Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Sleep is vital to human health. It allows our bodies to rest, repair, and rebuild. On the other hand, sleep deprivation affects work performance, efficiency, and productivity. Lack of sleep also increases the risk of chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and depression. Fortunately, certain foods can promote sleep and regulate your sleep cycle. Here are six healthy foods that can help improve sleep quality, starting with number one, almonds. Almonds are rich in melatonin, a biorhythm hormone produced by the pineal body. This helps to regulate the sleep-wake rhythm in the human body. A 2007 study was published in Scoliosis. It mentioned that melatonin can help treat sleep disorders and tumors. It helps to regulate mood, emotional disturbance, reproduction, the cardiovascular system, and aging. Number two on the list is chamomile tea. Chamomile is widely known as a mild sedative and sleep inducer. A cup of soothing chamomile tea can help you to fall asleep. In 2019, a study was published in Phytotherapy Research. It points out that sleep quality of patients with anxiety significantly improved after chamomile treatment. In the study, chamomile was found to be practical and safe. Chamomile preparations such as tea and essential oil aromatherapy are excellent. They can treat insomnia and induce calmness. Number three on the list, kiwis. Kiwi is rich in nutrients such as vitamin C, potassium, and vitamin E. Eating kiwi before bed can help people with sleep disorders to fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and reduce the frequency they wake up at night. In 2011, a study was published in the Asia-Pacific Journal of Clinical Nutrition. 24 subjects aged 20 to 55 consumed two kiwis an hour before bed every night for four weeks. After four weeks of kiwi consumption, testing subjects could fall asleep faster. Their total sleep time and efficiency also improved. Number four on the list, bananas. Bananas are rich in vitamin B6, vitamin C, potassium, fiber, magnesium, and manganese. Vitamin B6 is a water-soluble vitamin and plays a role in synthesizing constant nutrients. It also acts as a coenzyme in pathways involving neurotransmitters such as serotonin. Vitamin B6 is often used as an ingredient in sleep drugs. 
And number five on the list, milk. Drinking a glass of warm milk before bed is a common home remedy for insomnia. It's rich in calcium and it promotes bone health and lowers the risk of osteoporosis. Milk is also abundant in tryptophan and vitamin D, both connected to improved sleep. Tryptophan can be converted into serotonin and melatonin, resulting in relaxation and sleepiness. So if you want to improve sleep, add almonds, chamomile tea, kiwis, bananas, and milk to your bedtime ritual. An annual bee survey found America's honeybee hives just struggled through the second highest death rate on record, with beekeepers losing nearly half their managed colonies. Scientists say there are many things that can kill bee colonies. We usually group um, you know, what we call the risk factors into those big categories, pests and disease, uh, pests and parasites and, and the disease that are associated with them, uh, pesticides, poor nutrition, um, and, and then uh, poor management. But using costly and time-consuming measures to create new colonies, beekeepers are somehow keeping afloat. The University of Maryland and Auburn University released the annual survey yesterday. It found despite heavy losses, the number of honeybee colonies remained relatively stable. That's because commercial beekeepers split and restock their hives, finding or buying new queens or even starter packs for colonies. Researchers also found beekeepers have learned how to rebound from big losses. Honeybees are crucial to the food supply, pollinating more than 100 of the crops we eat, including nuts, vegetables, berries, citrus, and melons. The next story is sure to make your day. It comes from Pasco County Fire Rescue in Florida, where firefighters got an unusual call. A horse named Mo was stuck in a swimming pool and needed some help. Officials say Mo attempted to jump over the pool after getting spooked by another horse, but fell short of his goal. After hoping, hopping into the pool, firefighters rescued a harness, secured a harness, and lifted and carefully lifted the horse from the water. The lucky horse seemed to take it all in stride, and the Pasco Fire Department says Mo is in good condition. And that's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan.